So we will be looking tonight at verses 6 through 18 of chapter 3. Ed has the handouts if you didn't get one as you came in. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3, and we saw that Paul had asked for prayer from the Thessalonians, particularly for the work that he was doing as he continued to spread the gospel across the Roman Empire. We also saw that Paul gave a summary of what they were to be about, and by extension, what we're to be about as believers until Christ comes back. We're to pray for the spread of the gospel, just like they did, and just like we did tonight. We're to continue to obey the apostolic instruction that God has given first through the apostles and recorded for us in his word. And we're to continue to grow in our understanding both of God's love for us and of the steadfastness of Christ, recognizing that both of those things will motivate us to live more faithfully for God and to be more Christ-like. Now, Paul has one more area of instruction and exhortation that he needs to address. But notice he's very shrewd in his teaching. He does this in a number of places. I think it's a great example for us to follow as well. The first thing he does before he gets to this last issue is to commend the Thessalonians, commend them for their spiritual progress. He's been very encouraging and positive about that progress, especially in those first five verses of chapter 3. And that paves the way for him to provide some needed correction on a problem that evidently wasn't getting better. This was a problem that was addressed in the first letter, and it seems as he'd gotten a report back that things were not getting better, and he's going to have to be a little firmer this time. But he, he first establishes his love for the Thessalonians, his thanksgiving to God for their progress, before he moves into this area of rebu- rebuke and correction. So let's read together verses 6 through 18, and then we'll work through it a section at a time according to the outline. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship. We kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We've titled this The Proper Solution for Idleness. And the first thing that Paul does is point back to previous instruction and example to help with the correction of this issue. He opens this section with a command that's both authoritative and affectionate. It's addressed to his brothers. That's the affectionate part. He doesn't want to lose sight of that. 
But it's also in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the authoritative part. Paul's not speaking just from his own authority here. He's speaking directly on behalf of Christ as an apostle. We spoke already about the fact that he had commended them, back up in verse 4, for their obedience up to this point. And he expresses confidence that they'll continue to obey what is commanded. So that paved the way for this kind of command. This is a very serious issue. And the fact that he says this command is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ means it's not just a suggestion. This is something that's to be obeyed. And notice that this command is directed toward the majority of the community who needs to deal with a disobedient minority within that same community. We'll see as we move through the passage that Paul will speak directly to the offenders as well, directly to the minority, and he kind of goes back and forth between the responsibilities of the majority to enforce what he's teaching and the responsibility of the minority to repent. The command itself is to keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life. And Paul had dealt with this in his first letter. Remember back in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he said to admonish the unruly. And now because the unruly were not listening to that admonishment, there's a need to increase the pressure. and And his counsel as a means of increasing the pressure is to stay away from them. So we see here a proper movement from simple instruction and exhortation to consequences. Consequences of that exhortation from the Lord Jesus Christ is not obeyed. And sometimes consequences are necessary, aren't they? Sometimes consequences can achieve what mere words can't. The consequence here is a loss of fellowship with other believers. Now, this action doesn't deny that he's a brother, at least not at this point. But he must feel the consequences of his fault from the whole community with the hope that he'll repent. We don't have consequences just to punish the other person, to cut them off. But the whole idea is to bring them to repentance so that they might be restored back to the community. The conduct that's to be disciplined is described in two ways here. First, it's described as an unruly life. And the words used here, they describe a deliberate choice and pattern, not just an occasional lapse. And second, it's described as not according to the tradition which they had received from Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy. Now, he's going to go on in verses 7 and 8 to describe exactly what that tradition was. Let's look at those verses again. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, Paul reminds them of something that they already knew very well. Remember, he had set this example before them when he was actually there among them. He'd written to them about it in his first letter, and now he's having to bring it up again. But this is something that they already knew. Paul and his companions had taught them by precept of the need to work hard and provide for the needs of their families. But even more importantly, he had taught them, they had taught them by personal example. Thessalonians had been eyewitnesses of how hard these guys worked. He says they worked night and day so as not to be a burden to any of them. Now, that doesn't mean that that's all they did, that they never slept. But they were willing to work at both a night kind of time and a day kind of time to provide for their own needs and not just get what they could off the Thessalonian believers. Remember, there were a lot of false teachers that did do that. They would 
gather converts, they would seek disciples, and then they would sponge off of them for material support. Now, you see this phrase, to eat bread, and that can be taken very literally. That's part of it, but it really means support, material support, financial support of any kind to meet physical needs. Paul's not saying here that he never accepted a meal, that he never accepted hospitality from believers. Surely he did. But what he is saying is that he did not make it a habit to live off the largesse of others, to live off the grace of others, and to be dependent upon his converts for a living. So he's making a clear contrast between how he and his companions behaved while they were there at Thessalonica and how these idlers were behaving, these loafers that were there now. He's also making it clear that he's not asking anything of his converts that he himself was not willing to do. Again, if we look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says something very similar to what he, what, what he says here in chapter 3 of the second letter. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the, the gospel of God. So by doing this, these missionaries really went above and beyond the call of duty, above and beyond what was required. And Paul is not saying here that those who labor in the gospel, those who teach, uh, particularly in the church, and who uh, are responsible for sharing spiritual things, should not get material support from those that they minister to. He's not saying that, right? Because certainly in other places, he advocates that very thing. Let's look at a couple of examples of that. Remember, he wrote to Timothy... In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. He's not just talking about honor in the sense there of respect. He's talking about money. He's talking about remuneration, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you should not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He says something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 11 through 14. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. That's exactly the same thing he was doing in Thessalonica. He was wanting to offer the gospel free of charge and not to appear as if he was doing this just to get money. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So he's not saying here that those who labor as leadership in the church should not be supported. That's not what he's arguing for at all. He is saying that he... uh, that he didn't want to do that because he was willing to give up that right. In fact, that's what he says in verse 15, the very next verse, I have used none of these things. Paul consistently gave up his right to be supported as an apostle of Christ, both to set a good example of a disciplined life and to be free from the charge that he was making disciples in order to get what he could financially from them. Think about this contrast. Paul had the right and refused to take it. These idlers did not have the right and and made claim to it. The Thessalonians knew they were supposed to follow the example of a disciplined life. And in fact, many of them had followed it 
and even had become an example to others. Again, if we go back to the first letter, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. But there were some who were not getting with the program, and that's the ones that he's going after in this correction. In verse 10, he gets very blunt with them. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. This is really the, the summary of this whole passage. That's what he's trying to drive home. He had taught this when he was with them. He provided a personal example of it by working hard and not living off the generosity of others. Many of them had indeed followed that example. And now he's asking the majority to enforce this principle upon those who are refusing to follow it. Now, he's not addressing those who, for whatever reason, are not able to work. He's addressing those who can work and refuse to. Giving to charity to these kinds of folks really only encourages them in their laziness. And in fact, it's a good thing for them to get a little hungry, right? Proverbs says, a worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. That's what Paul has in mind here. He's not willing to work, don't let him eat, and hopefully his hunger will cause him to work. Now, he's been talking a lot about the example of a disciplined life in these verses, And in verses 11 and 12, he comes back to the real issue and gives a summary command to address it. That's the renewed instruction in verses 11 and 12. We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. An undisciplined life translates the Greek word ataktos. This is the word that Paul's been using throughout this passage. It means lazy, idle, disorderly. And these folks were not only not working, but they were meddling in the business of others. That's what happens when you don't work. You have too much time on your hands, and it gets you in trouble because you start interfering with people that are trying to work. Idle hands are the devil's workshop, as the saying goes. That's what was happening here, and Paul has to address it. He'd spoken about it in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 11. He told them then to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business. That is, not start small businesses. That's what is not what he's saying here. But don't mess in the business of others. Don't meddle in their business. Work with your hands just as we commanded you. Evidently, the situation had not gotten better, and Paul has to take stronger action here with these busybodies. And that leads to his command in verse 12. Now, here's where he more directly addresses the actual offenders. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So we see the addressees of this command are the busybodies. These are the folks who are not working and interfering with other people's work. We see the content of the command is the same as it was before. Do your own work. Do it in quiet fashion. The very opposite of being a busybody So you can eat your own bread and take care of your own needs. And again, we see the authority of the command. This wasn't just coming from Paul. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a command from the Lord and the exhortation of a brother. Paul wants them to get back on track so this problem will no longer exist. So 
He's talked to the majority community. He's narrowed in on the minority community, the ones that were offending and not doing the work. And now he comes back to the faithful members and tells them what they need to do to enforce this command. And that is to provide corrective separation. It's verses 13 through 15. Verse 13 says, As for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Now, at first you read that and you think, well, what does that have to do with anything? It seems like a, a very general command here in the midst of a very particular issue. Paul says something similar to the Galatians when he tells them, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Both of these verses imply that sometimes it's hard to do good, isn't it? It does get tiresome, especially if you're trying to do good to people and they don't appreciate it or they're not impacted by it the way that you'd like for them to be. Sometimes doing good and doing justice and righteousness goes against the grain, and it wears you out. So Paul's exhorting towards that, not to grow weary in doing good. But I think we can also say that there's a couple of things in the context here that are very specific about this command. First, he's commanding the faithful members to do good in the sense of doing what is best for these busybodies. Discipline is important. It's an extremely important part of the Christian life, but it's also hard. We have to keep in mind the big picture, the long-range good of the person that's being disciplined. It's the same with your children, right? Disciplining your children is a good example of this. And the writer in Proverbs, sometimes it's Solomon, sometimes it's some of the other writers in Proverbs, anticipates this when they say, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with a rod... He will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. There is a reluctance to discipline, right? Especially when the kid's crying really hard and you don't like to inflict the pain necessarily, but you're looking at the long-term good of the child. And that's why discipline is so important. He says the same thing in verse uh, chapter 13 of Proverbs, verse 24. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Both of those are looking at the long-term good of the child. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So Paul is urging us here to do what is right for these folks by dealing with those who don't want to work. And, and with any other sin issue for that matter. But something else he may be speaking about here and not growing weary and helping others is when there is a genuine need. There will always be people that are genuinely needy, people who either can't work or temporarily out of work or who need some help temporarily till they get back on their feet again. And charity is very appropriate in those cases. In fact, the rest of us that are gainfully employed should work hard so that we have enough not only to meet our needs, but they be able to help others when they have a need. Verse 14 provides a very strong contrast. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him that he may be put to shame. And again, there's consequences. They've been given an opportunity. They've been admonished. They've refused. They've been exhorted. They've, been, they've refused. And now... What you have to do is, is recognize that there's got to be further consequences and further pressure. 
Again, he gives a command with the authority of the Lord to do this. It's a very serious thing. Anyone who was not willing to work was to be kept at arm's length. And it was to shame them. And I, I hear people talk about other parts of the world and that there's a shame culture when you don't do what is right. It's almost as if our own culture is afraid to have shame anymore. Well, this is a very clear example that shame is a good thing. Shame can lead to repentance. That's what he says here. And that's what the desire is. You disassociate with them so that they will be ashamed and be and repent. But he comes back in verse 15 and says, you know, don't go too far. Don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is a warning against having a wrong attitude towards an idler. He should not be regarded as an enemy either of God or of Christ's church. There's not to be personal hostility towards him or personal vengeance in any way. He's not to be excommunicated from the church, not yet. He's still to be regarded as a brother in Christ. And the additional pressure through disassociation with him is designed to lead him to repentance. So the goal is not exclusion, ultimately, but reformation. Now, how he responds to that pressure will say a lot about where he is with the Lord. Hopefully he repents and he's restored to regular fellowship. If he doesn't, there may be more pressure that's necessary. And that's why church discipline is set up the way that it is. It's a series of steps. And after each step, you give time, allowing that person to repent and come back. And only after the last step has failed do you put someone out of the church and regard them as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, in essence, as an unbeliever. Well, before we look at the conclusion to the letter, I want to just say a few things about work in general. Paul's dealing with a very specific situation here. We don't know for sure. I mean, it seems like that some of what prompted the undisciplined life was even his teaching about the imminence of the day of the Lord and the fact that they they were thinking, well, if Christ is coming back this soon, why do I need to keep working? That's not explicit from the letter. I think it's fair from both letters because both of them are so eschatological and talking so much about the day of the Lord and the return of Christ. But there could have been other issues that were keeping these folks from working, and whatever it was, it needed to be corrected. But I wanted to say a few things about work itself. First, work is a gift from God. God gives each one of us certain abilities and certain opportunities for work, and he wants us to use both of those for his glory and for our good, to provide for our needs and to provide for the needs of our families and for those within the body of Christ. Secondly, work was given to man from the very beginning in the garden. And I make that point because some people want to think or maybe unconsciously think that work only came in after the fall. Work didn't come in after the fall. It changed the nature of work to be sure. And it made work more difficult. But work was part of God's plan for man from the very beginning. Listen to this verse. These verses in Genesis chapter 1, this is on the sixth day of creation, after God had made everything else, he made man, he made him male and female, and this is what he said to him. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. 
Now, that's a very broad definition of what man's task is to be as God's regent and ruler over all the rest of his creation. Think about all the work that's involved in subduing the creation. That's what man's to be about, and man has done it very effectively through the ages. Even unbelieving man has done it. Work is a big part of our lives, and it's something that comes from God himself. There's another verse, and both of these are before the fall. The second one's in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. Then look down in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So, you know, the thorns and thistles weren't there yet, and the difficulty of tending the garden wasn't there yet. That would come in after the fall. But the work that was involved in keeping and tending the garden was there. The fall and the curse that came with it make our work more difficult. But work itself is one of the very good gifts that God's given to man. And as I said before, even unbelieving man has done a very good job of subduing the earth and extracting all kinds of good things from the earth because God has enabled him to do that. Thirdly, the work that man does follows from his being made in the image of God. God himself is a worker. He's the very best worker. He works through producing and sustaining his creation, the entire universe. He works through the process of redemption, not just the souls of men, but all creation. Remember, ultimately, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth by the work of God. He even works in judgment and bringing judgment on this planet and on people. That's part of his work. Now, all of God's creatures work, right? Even the beasts of the field have to go out and work to get their food. But man's work separates us from all the other creatures. Monkeys don't write symphonies, do they? Only man can do that. Only man can make the incredible buildings that we see across the earth. Only man can make the means of transportation that we see. And I mean, you can look. I love technology, and I love reading and studying about the history of technology and the way that man, through the ages, and it started way back in Genesis, the way that man has built things, the way that he's invented things, it's incredible. Now, you can do that, and you can give man the glory, and that would be wrong. But you can also recognize that and recognize that it comes from God. God's the one that made man. God's the one that gave man the ability to do these things. All these things ultimately give glory to him because he did make man and give him the ability to subdue the earth and rule over it. Fourthly, work is a means of worship for us as believers. One of the principles of the Reformation was the sanctity of all vocations, not just the clergy. Apart from sleeping, we'll spend more time working and any other thing that we do. I'm not just talking about eight to five kind of work. I'm talking about all kinds of work, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're working to take care of your house on the weekend on top of a 40-hour week. We spend a good chunk of our lives working. God gives us the abilities and opportunities for work, and we honor him when we do our work well. Again, if we look at Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29, do you see a man skilled in his work? 
He'll stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And Paul wrote again to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, as Christians, we ought to be the very best workers that there are, regardless of what our vocation is. First, because we don't just work to please our boss. We work to please the Lord. That's our ultimate motivation. And secondly, because work is a primary means by which we give testimony that we belong to Christ. If we do our work well, if we're punctual, if we do a good job, if we go above and beyond what's required of us, people will see a difference. It will be in stark contrast, and they will know it will give us an opportunity to share Christ. It will give us an opportunity to demonstrate that we know God and seek to honor him through every aspect of our lives. There is a book that I would recommend to you. We have a copy of it in the library. It's checked out right now. I I haven't checked it out, but I've read it before. It's called Your Work Matters to God. It's by Doug Sherman and William Hendricks. I would highly commend that book to you, whether you're uh, considering changing vocations, whether you need a little extra motivation to recognize the significance of your work in the grand scheme of things. Uh, It's an excellent book. Well, that brings us to the conclusion to this letter and to really to our study of Second Thessalonians. Paul closes his letter with a prayer for his readers in verses 16 through 18. Again, he's constantly turning to prayer over the course of this letter. This is the fourth one that he's offered for them in Second Thessalonians. He says in verse 16, May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. This is a recognition by Paul that God alone can bring the peace that Paul's asking for. And Christ is the Lord of peace in that he's made the way for ultimate peace. Peace between us and him made possible through Christ's atoning work on the cross. That peace in turn makes peace possible in every circumstance, regardless of how difficult it is. Both kinds of peace are a gift from God. You have to have the first one before you can have the second one. Paul is praying for that along with Christ's presence in every circumstance. Christ himself has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Now we get to the benediction in verses 17 and 18. It says in verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. We talked about this when we were in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Remember the issue there? There was false teaching that had come in. And somebody even evidently had written a letter and put Paul's name on it that the day of the Lord had already arrived. And Paul wants to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Now, he doesn't do this in the first letter, this verse that I read about his handwriting. But he does it here, and he does it in several other subsequent letters. It was his habit to use what's called an amanuensis or a scribe. When he wrote his letters, he would dictate them, and the scribe would write them down. How do we know that? Well, let's look at a couple of examples. Romans chapter 16, verse 22, it says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, we know that Paul wrote Romans, right? But Tertius is the one that actually wrote it down as Paul dictated it to him. 1 Corinthians 16, 21 says, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. So evidently what was happening in several of these letters, 
the scribe would write the bulk of it, and then Paul, at the very end, would write some greeting or something out in his own hand, again, so that they would recognize that this was truly from him. Same thing in Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. That would be great if we had the original autographs that Paul wrote. We don't have those, but we do have the preservation of these kinds of things at the end of his letters to know how he did this. And here at the end of 2 Thessalonians, which would have preceded all these other letters that we just looked at, he takes pen in hand and writes the closing greeting himself. This would give his readers a sample of his handwriting so that they would not be taken in or deceived in the same way that they had been earlier. And then Paul closes this letter the same way he began it, with a wish for God's ongoing grace in the lives of his readers. One of the commentaries that I used in both First and Second Thessalonians is written by a guy named D. Edmund Hebert. I would, again, anything that he's done work on, I would encourage you to take advantage of. He has commentaries on First and Second Thessalonians, James, First Peter. There's probably some other ones. He's written an introduction to every New Testament book that's really well done. But I wanted to read, uh, in conclusion, just a quote from his commentaries that I think sums up well the teaching of First and Second Thessalonians. In looking back over these two letters to the church at Thessalonica, one is deeply impressed with their timeliness and imperishable value for believers today. They give us an illuminating and in some ways a surprising impression of certain phases of Christian faith and life 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. We are reminded anew that apostolic churches were not perfect churches, but the transforming encounter of the members with the living Christ had produced a startling change in their lives and thinking. Remember, these letters are written to people who came out of very pagan backgrounds, And now they were being commended by none other than Paul himself for their spiritual progress in the Lord. They had passed from death unto life, and their living faith centered in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, whose return they eagerly expected. But this hope for the future, what they did not yet fully understand, produced some reactions that the missionaries found necessary to guide and correct. So on the one hand, it was great that they were anticipating the return of Christ so eminently, Paul himself, I'm convinced, expected Christ to come back in his own time. But on the other hand, you could go too far that way. You could quit working, for example, and that would be completely out of balance. It's the same for us. We have the responsibility on the one hand to look forward to the return of Christ and let that be a sanctifying influence in our lives. At the same time, we have things to do, and we don't know the date. So we work hard on the one hand, and we stay faithful, and we... On the other hand, we look to the return of Christ to sustain us, especially during difficulties. This eschatological concern calls Paul to give a strong emphasis to this hope in these epistles, rightly called the eschatological group among the Pauline writings. I've enjoyed very much the study uh, for both of these. I hope you have too and profited from it. guess if there's one thing I would sum up to to let these letters speak to you about is the return of Christ and understanding that with a a fuller comprehension and understanding at the same time that that's something to motivate us to live for him in the meantime let's pray together and father we are thankful for that very thing we recognize that these letters were the first ones that Paul wrote 
and yet they were about your return. We sang about it tonight. We read so much about it, uh, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. We recognize that that will be the consummation of our salvation. That at that time, faith will become sight. And all these things that we've read about so much in the Bible and that we so much cherish will, will come about. It's a great thing for us. And we just thank you that you have told us so much about the future uh, and that that can motivate us to live godly in the present. Father, help us to be faithful in our work. We recognize that that is one of your gift, good gifts for us. We recognize that there's a need for rest as well, but that you want us to work for six days and that we can honor you and worship you by the way that we do that work, that we can earn money to cover our own needs, the needs of our family, that we can earn money to give back to you as a recognition that that all of it comes from you in the first place. Help us to be faithful in not only giving to our church, but to the work of the spread of the gospel. We thank you for your faithfulness in working in our church and working in spreading the gospel abroad yourself. Thank you for the time that we've had, uh, not just tonight, but through these weeks of study. Lord, teach us by your spirit. I pray that these truths would sink deep into our hearts and work themselves out in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.